That's different. That's different. That's different. Hello and welcome to That's Different Podcast, the show about the path less traveled. Each episode, I interview someone that has chosen to defy convention and do something different with their lives. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. Today, we are chatting with Rachel Fowler, the founder and owner of Tonelay. Tonelay is a zero-waste fashion brand, and Rachel oversees and owns the entire ethical and sustainable process end-to-end, from the manufacturing done with her direct employees in Cambodia to the sales at her boutique online and through partners. In this interview, we talk about how she came to create this brand, having a successful Kickstarter, sustainability in fashion, self-doubt, and self-care as an entrepreneur, among other things. If you head over to thatsdifferentpodcast.com, you can see the video of our interview. This was done in the San Francisco boutique, as well as the show notes and links to anything that we discuss on the show. There's so much great information in this inspiring interview, and I hope that you enjoy it. I heard that you once made and sold bags to your peers when you were in school. Yes. How old were you? (laughs) What, what, how did that get started? Um, I think I, let's see. Well, I started sewing when I was quite young and I always liked to make things. And then I think in, in high school, I sort of, I really struggled between this, like wanting to be trendy and wanting to fit in and have, at that time, everybody was wearing Abercrombie. And if you didn't have a t-shirt that had an Abercrombie logo on it, then you weren't cool. And oh, yeah. So, I was there during that time. <laughs> oh, it's so cringeworthy. <laughs> it was very popular at the time. Yeah. yeah. For, like when I, even younger than that, the first brand that I remember really thinking like I need to have this brand was limited to yeah limited to <laughs> we had zoomies also there was zoomies and limited to and then Abercrombie and Fitch and then so exciting when Abercrombie lowercase for just the younger people came in that was also okay I don't remember that I think I fear I was more deeply ingrained in this world than you were you know I I I have to credit my parents for this, but they were not very sort of brand, you know, they were kind of like anti-brand and anti-capitalist in this way. And we were shopping at thrift stores and things like that. And actually, I mean, this is a little bit of a sidetrack, but my house burned down when I was 11. Mm-hmm. And so that was right at the beginning of like having kind of consciousness of these brands and this, and, and, and it definitely was a wake up call for my whole family about like, these things don't really matter, you know? And Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, okay. we, we ended up... Um, getting a bunch of clothes just given to us by friends and so forth. But at the same time, that was when I started shopping for myself for the first time too, you know, Mm -hmm. around like 11, 12 years old, when I could start to kind of go to stores and pick out things that I wanted myself. So I was, you know, of course, influenced by brands the same way that all teenagers and young adults are. But I also still had this kind of deep or sort of maybe even subconscious, you know, feeling that something wasn't quite right about it. And Mm -hmm. I think particularly because I knew how to sew and I would make things, I would sort of see these things in the stores and be like, this isn't, you know, how could someone make something for this much money? It doesn't really all add up. And the branding aspect, you know, the trend aspect, I I felt like there was a lot of shallowness to it. So you were discovering this really, really young because I, one of the things I was curious about was like, when did you discover you were into fashion and when did you discover that maybe like it didn't really match your moral compass, but it seems like it was all just kind of swirling yeah, at once. Yeah, and I think also, you know, I was growing up becoming aware of these things during the kind of sweatshop protests of the 90s. Yeah. And I also remember, you know, kind of knowing from a very young age that there were sweatshops somewhere in the world and 
you know, that it wasn't really fair that mm -hmm. we were able to buy clothes so cheaply when these people weren't being treated well, and particularly that there were children who were making these products that were younger than me. And also because I knew how to make things myself, you know, you kind of understand like how much work goes into something. And so there's a vague kind of understanding that like something about this isn't right. I had a pretty deep social justice kind of um, childhood. It was sort of steeped in the way that our parents raised us as well. Okay. And so I think the combination of those factors um, definitely gave me some awareness that something was wrong with it. And so I, in high school, I became really drawn to the kind of DIY punk rock movement. And that kind of fell in line with like rebelling against the system, making your own clothes, not being part of this like capitalist thing that's telling you have to buy things right. and make you feel, you know, to be cool or to be trendy or to fit in. So it was a little bit of that too that started to influence me. And so, yes, I was a little bit, you know, succumbed to some of those pressures to feel like I had to fit in to buy certain things. And then there was another part of me that sort of resented it. Like, why do I have to do this? Like, well, I would see things in these stores and be like, well, I could make that and sell it for like less money and the money would go directly to me and I would be able to, you know. Okay, so this is how the bag started then. <laughs> so I started to make things and sell them to my classmates. And I think that my classmates liked it because they were things that, like basically I would make things for people and it'd be like, they'd be the only one to have it. So it'd right. be like completely unique. And somehow like, that was kind of cool. Like, I don't think I was, you know, the most popular kid or anything like that, but somehow people were buying it and they liked it. So I was making like these dresses and tops and like wrap skirts and stuff and just selling them to people. And then people would see them and be like, oh, where, like, where'd you get that? And then I would make more of them. To be honest, I never really considered, like, I definitely didn't think at the time, like, oh, I'm going to be a fashion designer. Like, I didn't think of going into the fashion industry because... I kind of knew that it was really problematic. Okay, but then you went on to what your your major was fibers in yeah, university. Yeah, so that was after high school. I went to college and I actually started as a painting major because I also had a passion oh, for art. Okay, and um, but I found the pa painting kind of world to be very um, patriarchal and kind of focused on individual mm. male egos and. You know, historically, you know, it's very Eurocentric, very focused on these like, you know, geniuses and their st these male geniuses in their studios. And even still today, the art world is very plagued by this notion that, you know, it's about being individualistic, but at the same time, it's all about investment capital. Like, how much money can you buy and sell a painting for, right? And just being on the cusp enough and just being trendy enough to sell this painting for X amount of money. Investors buy it, they put it in a basement, no one even looks at it. And then 10 years later, if that artist has become famous, now this thing is worth 10 times as much money. And I think that artists, a lot of times, unfortunately fall into this trap where like they wanna just create their art and this is the model of buying and selling art. So they kind of have to go along with it. Anyway, I saw that and I was like, oh, well, this isn't really what I signed up for. I wanna create things for the love of art and for building community and for you know telling an important message. And I thought that was what art could do, but I wasn't seeing that in mm. kind of the career track that I was looking at. I met some folks from the fibers department at the school that I was at and I was like, oh, these are my people, like they get it. There was a lot of discussion about 
feminism, textiles are often devalued because they're made by women. I mean, that's historically what's happened. And so even textile art compared to paintings is often considered, you know, it's craft or it's not valuable. I think there were a lot of great conversations happening in that department about gender politics, about labor, about, um, you know, collaborative making and community as opposed to just focusing on like these individual kind of solo genius type personalities. And that's what really drew me to the textile world. And so I was kind of looking at it more as how can I create art that connects people, that creates community. So still not necessarily for producing clothing at the time, but looking at it from an art perspective. Right. Okay. So, you know, it was very much in a kind of theoretical, philosophical way that drew mm-hmm. me to textiles. Um, textiles are also an art form that has been used and created by every single culture in the world throughout history. And so it's a thing that basically connects all of us as humans. It's one of the few art forms that's present in every you know, kind of human society. Um, So in a way, it connects us more than any other art form does. And everything that you buy, you know, in a store, it still has a connection to some cultural story or symbol, even if we are completely divorced from that now. So from a philosophical perspective, I really like the idea of getting into textiles, but I still had no idea how I was going to connect that to a career. And is this about the time when you went to Cambodia for the first time? So in 2000. Seven, I had an opportunity to visit Cambodia, um, and I was really interested in fair trade. I, I mean, I tried to buy fair trade products as much as I could at the time. Now, this was in 2007, so fair trade was growing a lot, but it was still more associated with like coffee and you know food products and other commodities, mm-hmm. not so much fashion. I mean, there were some fair trade fashion brands, but it was very small and nascent at the time. This family friend of ours had this idea to try to start a business in Cambodia with fair trade textiles, and so I went with her to learned about that and explore that possibility. And that was the first time that I had met groups of artisans who were practicing these traditional crafts in a way that could actually give them a fair employment and livelihood. Mm-hmm. And I also was able to see, not that on that trip, but I knew that there was a huge garment manufacturing industry in Cambodia as well. It was the first time that I saw people making a traditional craft in a way that could actually give them a fair employment. So mm-hmm. that was really interesting because I think in North America, unfortunately, like it would be almost impossible for a weaver to make a living making garments that people could actually wear. I mean, aside from really, really high-end stuff and basically fine art. So it really struck me that, oh, here's a place where this could be a viable living for people, you know, to preserve these traditional crafts and make these beautiful products. There were some really amazing, inspiring artisans that I met there. And that kind of inspired me to apply for a grant and then go back to Cambodia And um, I was able to spend a year working with those artisans that I met and kind of learning about their businesses and what was working for them and not working for them. And that was also, you know, when I first kind of saw and realized that, you know, the fashion industry is this global, very problematic industry. And I have been protesting it and fighting against it for, you know, in a number of, of ways for like 10 years, more or less. But at the same time, like we need people who can get in there and change it. We can't just sort of stand on the outside and say, this is bad. We need to do something more than that. And so I saw for the first time that I could align, you know, things that I thought I was good at and passionate about with something that would be potentially, you know, in line with my values and helping to maybe make things better, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the first trip to Cambodia and how long was it between you coming home from that to you going back to live there for the year. So that was my um, 2007, the year before I graduated. Okay. And then I came back from Cambodia and I had one, one more year of school. So I finished one and okay. one year of school. And then during that time I was applying for the Fulbright grant. So 
that process also takes like a year. Mm -hmm. And then I was able to be lucky enough to receive a grant and go back to Cambodia in mid-2008. Okay. So it was about a year and then you were over there. And then you ended up spending like eight years there in total though. Did you come, did you come back between or like after the first year or did you just stay there? So when I first went to Cambodia, you know, it was under this grant. I was working with different artisan groups. I learned some of these traditional crafts. I tried to um, figure out how to do this weaving and it created a lot of um, understanding for me about how everything was literally made as well. And I also offered them, you know, free design consulting essentially in exchange for what they were, you know, teaching me. And so it was kind of a really nice way to exchange our skills and, you know. And was it really structured or did you have, like, how did you decide what to do when you got there? Was there someone that was kind of directing you on what to do or was this fully you no, just going out? No, it's completely self-directed. That's kind of how the Fulbright program works. It's like you have to create a program for uh-huh. yourself and you – um just implement it. And so it's totally open, but um, it's very rigorous to get into. So you have to have a really strong proposal and and project to be able to even apply and get the Fulbright. Um, A lot of people use it for like doctoral research or or research for their dissertation or something like that. The artist Fulbright grants are typically more about a project that you execute. Okay. And so what was it like just being there on your own for the first year, like how did it feel? Like what what was it like being immersed in the culture? Did you have any sort of culture shock being there? I uh, lived with a Cambodian family for the first okay. six months and they were really wonderful and they definitely helped me a lot to kind of have, um, you know, that support system and network. But it was like full immersion. Like I was taking Cambodian, like my classes, this was the local language. Um, I was the artisans I worked with, most of them only spoke Khmer, so I had to learn like the language really quickly. And the, the family that I lived with, they spoke English mostly, but I mean, I started to learn to speak Khmer with them as well. You know, I, I was really immersed and, you know, I, I don't think, I mean, in terms of culture shock, I I think the hardest thing is just that, I mean, Cambodia is a beautiful country. There People there are incredibly generous and kind. Um, and at the same time, you see, you know, some pretty stark realities for people that can be really hard to process and know what to even do, you know? So I think we, I I feel like in North America, there's kind of this mentality that if you see something bad, you have to help, but if we don't see it, it's fine. And so we can live in like blissful ignorance because our society is set up to help us like ignore these problems. Um, Whereas there, you know, the problems are really in your face. The inner conflict of seeing all of these pretty brutal, you know, challenges and, and situations and not being able to help or not being able to do anything um, and kind of recognizing what your responsibility is and what you should be involved in and what you can do and what you can accomplish. But at the same time, like you have to function and you have to be able to take care of yourself. So I think that finding that balance of self-care and also doing as much as you can in the right way Definitely, there's a lot of white saviorism and neo-colonialist kind of practices in the aid industry. A lot of those things can be harmful, even though they seem like they're the right thing to do at the time. So getting really, you know, immersed in a problem and understanding it before you jump in and try to, like, save somebody, I think is really important. 
but it's also really hard and emotionally hard to do that because you're basically seeing like these difficult situations but a lot of people don't understand the root causes and they try to fix a problem before they actually understand what's going on and that can create more problems essentially the, those were like probably the most challenging aspects um especially in the beginning but i mean always like throughout my whole time of living in cambodia yeah it's really diff difficult like you said like i found that to be some of the most eye-opening like travel that I've done when I've I, like, you know, you just want to go in and help, but then like the more that you take a step back and you look at the entire ecosystem of a problem or something, there's, you can really be having the opposite effect by just kind of putting a bandaid on top of it. Right. Yeah. And I think also we need to, especially as white folks with a lot of privilege, um, we need to acknowledge that it was our people, our governments who created a lot of these problems and sort of saying like, you know, I mean, the US was deeply involved in the war in Cambodia that caused the genocide that, you know, has wrought a lot of the poverty that exists there today to come in and say, oh, now I'm going to be your savior when you actually were part of the culture that created that problem in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't want to oversimplify it. I think it's really important to take ownership of that and to realize that, you know, it's not about me coming in and saving people. It's about me coming in and forming partnerships with people to help change this industry for the better. That's how I see it. And I'm honestly, I feel lucky to work with the people that I work with. And it's like, I feel like I've been given a lot of grace and acceptance by despite everything that has happened on behalf of my government and my people, that people are still willing to work with me is actually kind of, like, I am really grateful for that. And that's something that it's like flipping that narrative on its head and realizing that, like, I'm the one that is lucky yeah. to be able to do this. So I think first, like, coming in and not trying to just jump in and insert yourself before you try to, like, fix all these things when you don't completely understand what the root causes are or what even what people actually want. Like I've had a lot of experiences in my business over the last 10 years where, you know, I thought I knew what needed to be done. And then when you actually talk to people and you're like, okay, what do you actually want? What is your goal from this situation? What do you actually want? It doesn't always align with what you think is the right answer. So I've had to take a step back a bunch of times and reevaluate what I was doing in dialogue with people who were my partners in making that, you know, in making mm -hmm. that change. When you're you're there for the first year and when does the transition or when do you start to decide that maybe the direction you want to go is some sort of fashion line or uh, creating what eventually became Tonle? When I was in Cambodia for that first year, I worked with a number of groups and I was trying to understand, you know, like what can I do that is going to, you know, be mutually beneficial here? So how can I add value to like what these people are already doing, which was already pretty inspiring and amazing. Like I felt like I have so much to learn here, right? Mm -hmm. So it was about learning, but also like what can I, what can I do? Like how can I use this learning in a way that's going to benefit in a meaningful real way right so one of the groups that I was working with so it was a group of women who were all part of a clinic and the social worker from that clinic had approached me and basically said you know can you essentially help them start a business that they can run oh okay I was like well yes I can try to do that um so I I tried to do that and we started designing products um together and trying to find ways to sell these products. After about six months, um, you know, I kind of talked to them and I mean, the women, there were about five people 
and said, like, if you're going to run this business, like, here are the things that it's going to require. And mind you, we had no funding. There was so much training that needed to be done. A lot of these women didn't have backgrounds in design or anything. Um, they didn't speak English. So it was sort of like, okay, if you're going to start a business, it's probably going to have to be something local that caters to the local Cambodian audience. And it's actually going to be pretty hard to get paid fair wages because a lot of the local tailor shops do not pay fair wages. So the, the rates that you're paying at local tailor shops are not always enough to be fair. Okay. So therefore, like either you're going to have to create a product that's like way more special or you're going to need to cater to a more international audience. Mm-hmm. And potentially export. And, you know, when we had these conversations, they were sort of like, you know, the women that I was working with at that time, they were sort of like, you know, what we really want is a job that pays us good wages where we can go home and hang out with our families and not have to think about it, you know. Mm -hmm. And we just want – we really want, like, stable – like, a stable job with stable benefits and a salary. Like, we don't necessarily want to run a business. Mm, okay. Um, and I think that there was this idea that, like, in theory, everyone should be – I mean, this was also, like, at the height of kind of, like, the microfinance craze and Muhammad yeah. Venus and all this stuff. And it's, like, you know, people were coming to Cambodia and just, like, handing out sewing machines and being, like, here's a sewing machine. Now you can go run a business. And it's, like, never mind that this person lives in, like, a very rural area where no one in her community can afford to pay her a fair wage – let alone that she has no design or pattern making background. It's like just because someone has a tool, a tool doesn't mean they can run a business, right? Or that they want to run a business. I mean, if people really want to be micro entrepreneurs, great, then we should empower them to do that. But if what people really want is a stable salary, then maybe everyone being like an independent entrepreneur isn't the best you yes. know, solution, right? So when we had these real conversations and it was like, well, what do you really want? It was like, actually, no, we want like a good job with fair wages and benefits. So, you know, I kind of, that wasn't in my plan to stay in Cambodia to like help start this mm-hmm. business. And I, I had the full intention of saying like, I'm going to help you start this business and then I'm going to hand it over to you and I'm going to leave, right? So when you made this discovery, was it like a light bulb moment for you or were you like, okay, this is the thing. Let me, I really need to think about this or how did it feel? I definitely had to think about it because I had already planned on going back to the US and going into a master's program for art education. Like I was thinking of going on a completely different track. Yeah. But like throughout the course of that year, obviously I had discovered that I was really passionate about this. I loved doing it. I loved working with the people. I loved living in Cambodia. Um, And, you know, I also saw like with the fashion industry that there was definitely a need, like I said, for people to get in there and make these changes. And I mean, even at the time, like the concept of ethical fashion and stuff was still like almost non-existent. I mean, there were people trying to do fair trade. Like I said, there were eco-friendly brands, but it was very Mm -hmm. small, you know, and um so I definitely saw that there was a need for this um, and I was passionate about it. So it took t- definitely took some brainstorming and thinking, but I kind of thought like, yes. And also I really had developed a relationship with these people at that point and I know I cared about them and I was like, I don't like there's nothing else that I would be more excited about doing, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted to make sure that they were you know, could keep having these jobs that they wanted and so forth. And then I had basically been funding this through like some small donations and also Mm -hmm. through like my Fulbright money, which is really the money that they give you for the Fulbright grant is to, is to like fund your research, not to start a business. Mm -hmm. Um, But I basically like 
lived on like half as much as they gave me for the grant and then I took the other half and put it into the into the program which was not very much money but it was enough to just like pay people for a few months and Mm -hmm. kind of get things going so yeah that's kind of how it started and then I just realized yeah like I definitely want to do this and I want to come back and so I ended up going back to the U.S. for about two months and kind of trying to raise some money. When does the Kickstarter come into play? Was that around that time? Way later. Way later. Okay. So this is 2009. Okay. So yeah. So I had basically that first time around, I just raised like a small amount of money from friends and family, um, came back to Cambodia. We opened a store Mm -hmm. to basically sell locally. And that was kind of like how our operations were funded for the first like pretty much three years. That must have been difficult though because like you had to keep the prices really low, right? To sell locally or was Um, it tourists as well? Yes and no. We weren't selling them as cheap as what other places were selling them for, but they were also still very affordable. The market was to tourists and and travelers for by and large. Like we did get, you know, more and more Cambodian clientele over time, which was awesome. But mostly it was tourists and travelers. Yeah. Um, So we set up our store on kind of like one of the like trendy like boutique streets in Phnom Penh and we were kind of one of the earliest um yeah we were probably like the first like eco-friendly sustainable fashion brand in Phnom Penh um Mm -hmm. and there were a few other like I would say more like accessory brands and stuff like that but not too many other clothing stores so I think people would find us because it was rather unique at the time Mm -hmm. and so um started growing up from there and then and that by the way that brand was a different name yeah what was that called um, Kyokuje. Okay. Yeah. So this, this, there was like a lot of growing pains and bumps and, yeah. and so forth. And then eventually, um, reforming as Tone Lay in 2013. Okay. So in 2013, that's when you did the rebrand. Is that around the Kickstarter then? Yeah. So we did the rebrand. Um, and yeah, I basically had to reform the company and kind of start over, but we, a lot of the same team that I had been working with for that time. So, you know, still today we have, multiple members of our team at Tomley who have been with working with me the whole time since, okay. you know, 2008. So that's, that's great. really something I am proud of. And what does Tomley mean? Tomley means river. Okay. End of 2013 was when I restructured and rebranded. And then it was later in that year that we did the Kickstarter campaign to launch um, our e-commerce site. So okay. prior to that, we had basically been selling in Cambodia and also through a few wholesale partners. So people would kind of find us organically online and you know I couldn't distribute product from Cambodia because there's just not reasonable like shipping rates and so forth oh okay so I had to set up like U.S. distribution in order to start being able to set up a web because people would always be like oh why don't you just have a website I'm like well (laughs) just setting up a website is not that easy first of all people think it's really easy you just put a website up and people come No. (laughs) And secondly, um, you know, you need to have, we basically couldn't distribute from Cambodia. So we had to set up, you know, U.S. shipping and distribution. So it was in 2014 that I moved back to the U.S., um, started kind of running the company from here. Although obviously I go back and forth regularly. I had been building, you know, a leadership team in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Um, So we had, still had, um, I think, two American um, team members at that time, but most of our management was Cambodian. Mm-hmm. And now um, we have all Cambodian management, which is really exciting. That's really exciting. So, yeah. When the, the campaign that you did do on Kickstarter, it looks at least from 
when you see it now, it looks like it was wildly successful. Was it that you had already kind of been working on the brand for so long and so you had people that were following along or how were you able to get that traction, do you think? I think one, we were one of the first zero waste brands okay. out there. And so the concept of zero waste was really new. People didn't really know about the problems with waste in the garment industry, like at least I would say the average person. And so you know, the video that we made was pretty striking and very visual and it really showed people the problem in like a super tangible way. Okay. And I think people were becoming very aware of the problems in the garment industry, but that particular problem had not really been discussed. <laughs> mm. I'm not going to say we we're the only zero waste brand, but we were definitely one of the earliest players with in that space. And also the way that we do our zero waste process is quite unique um, in terms of taking waste from larger garment factories and using every single scrap so I think the video highlighted that in a super visual way. And then also, yes, we did have like an existing customer base. And I think because there were all these people who were basically travelers from around the world who had bought our products through the stores mm. that had signed up for our email list and so forth, like they really wanted to get our products. And we had been having people email us for years being like, I back in, you know, I'm, and people would come back to Cambodia and buy our stuff, you know, and they're like, oh. oh, I bought this dress like three years ago and I love it so much. And now, I mean, they... I'm not, I don't think they traveled to Cambodia just to buy our stuff, but they would come back and they would be like, yeah. this is my favorite dress. Like I've been waiting to come back here and get this. So I think once we launched our website, it was like we did have that initial base of customers. And then, so I think it was the combination of our initial customer base plus like the stickiness of the video and how it was kind of the right time and the right topic. Yeah. And so, you know, all of our Kickstarter campaign, um, Probably 10% were our existing customers and friends, and the other 90% were people that wow. I didn't know. Yeah. So that's really cool. Yeah. And you just touched on the zero waste, and you, you know, you talked about your management being Cambodian, but like I know that your dedication, the brand's dedication to the employees and then also to being zero waste, can you give the snapshot of what makes Tony really unique? Number one, we do our own manufacturing. I mean, everybody who makes our products is employed directly by us. We're not outsourcing to mm -hmm. another producer. We do get parts of our production from other people. Like for example, we use other fair trade makers in Cambodia to make our buttons or beads or things like that. Okay. But all of our production is done by our team. So we know, you know, everybody is getting this salary per month and these benefits. I mean, I view the payroll every single month. I know how much yeah. people are getting paid. Not to mention, because I lived in Cambodia for seven years, I have a close relationship with a lot of the makers. And so I think we have a level of transparency into our manufacturing in a way that very few people have, if, especially if they're making overseas. Yeah. And fair trade certifications and stuff are really great and it's super important, especially if you don't um, run your own production, I would say. But I think the closeness that we have with our manufacturing, the way that we do our manufacturing is actually just integrated into the company rather than being like a separate thing. I think most brands are basically that. They're a brand, they own their intellectual property, they own their marketing, but because they don't own the manufacturing there's a level of distance. And, and you know, there's there's pros and cons of that because I think I look at other brands that don't have to run their own manufacturing and they can put all their money into marketing. They can focus on making really great campaigns. They can focus on talking a lot about sustainability. Yeah. But the people actually doing the sustainability is not under their brand, which is a thing that is both frustrating for me and also like a thing that's really special about Tonle that should be celebrated. Yeah, definitely. The fact that you're taking 
material that is already kind of discarded and making sure that there's nothing left over. Yeah. So we basically take these waste that comes from larger garment factories. And I will just to be like for the people out there who are really into textiles and fashion, this is a combination of dead stock, but also offcuts and scrap and, and um, quality control failures, like things that don't finish the production. So dead stock is basically fabric on the rolls that is mm-hmm. overordered by the factories and there's excess at the end of a season because the fact these factories are producing for other brands they can't do anything with that fabric at the end because it's basically made for a specific product. So that will end up getting either destroyed if it's sort of intellectual property fabric or it will get resold on these secondary markets. So a lot of people question whether dead stock is really sustainable because it's essentially produced in excess right, and then not used and then turned into new things. But for us, you know, we are using not only that, but also these like actual scraps. Like sometimes we'll get bales of things that are cut off mm. in the cutting process or you'll find, I'll find like a whole bag of um, t-shirts that were half made and they have tiny holes in them. Those are the kind of things that will end up cutting into strips and turning into yarn and then weaving okay. into new fabrics. Like the one behind you. <laughs> yeah, like that, right? Like what you're wearing. Like what I'm well. wearing, yeah. So those are our really unique aspect of our brand. So like this black uh, underneath here, like these larger pieces are pieces that were basically made by your weavers. Yeah, and you can actually see this is like where they're joined together. So you can, and and this is like a bit more clear, but these are tiny scraps that are woven in. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can see that these are basically t-shirt fabrics. Yeah. So those are kind of some of our most unique processes. Um, the weaving group that we work with, they're independent as well, but it's a co- it's cooperatively managed and owned. But right now we're their main client, so we also kind of work really closely with them to make sure that they can, yeah. you know, uphold all the same practices that we believe in at Tomei. And um, this was pretty new for them, right? Because I, I, I heard you say once that um, they, they were like surprised that you wanted to use scrap. To make things, yeah, right? I think at first. Um, so we worked with a few different weaving groups, and um, you know, for weavers who have been weaving traditionally in Cambodia, like with the traditional techniques, this is pretty unusual. Mm-hmm. You know, rag rugs are a thing, but yeah. this is done in a much finer way. That's more a little bit more unique and special. And so, yeah, seeing these big piles of fabrics, like I think in Cambodia, those scrap fabrics are typically used to make like really poor quality rugs and kind of hammocks and things like that, but, and mops and stuff like they do get used, but they're usually, I mean, we would call that like, let's say downcycling as opposed to upcycling. So mm-hmm. they're usually used to be made into something that's of poor quality and of, of little value. So for us to kind of re look at these pieces of scrap as something valuable that can be made into something that's actually sold for a higher value that would surprise people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but these weavers, I mean, the thing is, they're really talented. They've been doing much, much finer weaving that was way harder to do. And so at first they're like, oh, this is kind of weird. But then they're like, oh, we like it because it's actually really easy to make once you like learn how to do it compared to what they were doing before, which was super fine, you know, silk weaving. Yeah. And so which was also very beautiful, but they were struggling to find a market for it because unfortunately like the market for silk has gone down and also they're doing it completely by hand. They can't compete with cheap prices of like factory made silk from Vietnam and other places. So they were struggling to find enough of the market, which is why they kind of approached us and said, you know, do you have something that we can do? So that's sort of how we 
Yeah. Yeah. But perspectives have been changing, right? Like that perspective changed, but you must have seen like lots of different perspectives change since you've been in this for a while. And like you said, you were kind of in the, the ground floor of it. Like how have you think seen different people's perspectives change around you as far as just becoming more aware and like more interested in upcycling and that sort of thing. I mean, about you know, like sustainable fashion in general or? Yeah, yeah. Even the people, maybe the people who work for you or just like kind of the general like public's thoughts around it. Yeah. I mean, I think so from the Cambodian perspective specifically, um, I mean, I think that in Cambodia, there is a great pride, national pride about the land and about nature. Um, and, you know, even when you go to the grocery store, people are like, this is made in Cambodia and it's made with all natural, you know, things like, yeah, they don't necessarily have an organic certification, but they're really proud of like their local sustainable produce. And I think that's what people fundamentally want. There's a strong sense of value of the land and the natural beauty. But unfortunately, that doesn't align with kind of what's actually happening. And I think a lot of the pressures, the, a, a lot of the environmental pressures on Cambodia have come from outside. Okay. Um, so whether they're climate change caused, there's, there are farmers who are essentially ending up in debt bondage because wild climate swings have, you know, they can mm. go from, you know, these subsistence farmers who basically they rely on a good crop every single year to make enough food for their family. If they have one bad season they can end up in debt bondage with their entire family. Um, so wild swings of the climate and then, I mean, just pollution in general. Um, you know, you probably heard about how North America was shipping its plastic trash all over the world, trying to stop taking it. And then one of the countries it would start ending up in is Cambodia. And it would be going through these private recyclers and the private recyclers mm -hmm. would take like 10% of it and recycle it to sell it. That was useful. And then the rest was just dumped in the environment. So it's been a few years since I've been there, but apparently in the port of Sihanoukville, which I avoid going to because I've heard such horror stories, but it's just filled with plastic trash. And you can, you know, reach in the water and pick up wrappers from Walmart, which are mm. clearly not from Cambodia. Yeah. Um, and so things like that. So there's a lot of that. And then, but it's also just the cheap packaging that's being imported from other places. Yeah. And so for a while, I think people in Cambodia were kind of unaware of the scale of the problem but nowadays because they're literally living in this mm -hmm. plastic trash you know um they really are getting upset about it and so mm. I think that the Cambodian people especially in the last yeah last like three years or so there's been a lot more kind of outcry from people in Cambodia about the environmental you know pressures that they're facing yeah not to mention, you know, pollution from the garment factories is a big thing. Yeah. Our general manager, um, Sir Own, she's told me that there's river a river near her house near a garment factory where they see pollution coming, you know, in the river all the time. You know, I've seen like ponds and lakes like full of soap suds mm. and stuff like that, which are clearly coming That's from garment terrible. Factory yeah. factories. So they they're seeing all of that, you know, and then there's also Cambodia's being deforested at one of the highest rates in the world as well. And so I think it's something like of the remaining um, rainforest in Southeast Asia, it's like 20% are in Cambodia. So if if 20% of Southeast Asia's rainforests are in Cambodia and Cambodia is being deforested at a more rapid rate than any other country in that region, that's very concerning, right? Yeah. So the, um, they don't have the luxury of uh, 
not worrying about these things, right? Because it's now just right on their front porch, all of these issues. Right. Exactly. And and the thing that's super sad is that a lot of it's not because of anything they've done or their contributions, you know? Right. It's us, basically. And a lot of the manufacturing that's happening there, too, is, is I mean, most of it's being exported. So it's like they're making the products – the waste is being dumped in their country. The carbon emissions are happening there, but they get no benefit from those products. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even even um, some of the garment factories are powered by burning rainforest wood. Like, they're literally creating power from burning trees. I mean, it's it's um, really sad and shocking. So I think that people in Cambodia are starting to be like, this enough is enough. You know, people yeah. are standing up to it. Yeah, I think people in Cambodia are starting to um, – you know, talk about this more. So within our team, I think that our makers are really proud of what they're doing and they, cause they see all these scraps, you know, no, yeah. they're now seeing like all these scraps come into our workshop and go out as these beautiful products. So they're feeling really proud of their work. Yeah. So and they're being able to be involved. Yeah, they're seeing all of these things come in as scraps and go out as these beautiful products and their names are going on every single garment. And, you know, we have their pictures, you know, yeah in our store and, and they're like, you know, this is my work. I'm helping the future of my country by changing this and, you know, making a difference here. And I think they really feel proud of that. Yeah. Um, which is definitely so exciting to see. Definitely. So. And you have like, you obviously know so much and like I try and educate myself a little bit, but like you're telling me so much information that I don't know. And there may be listeners who haven't even really considered much about anything about like the ethics of fashion and this might just kind of be like an introduction what would you suggest or what would you recommend <laughs> as far as beginning to educate yourself on kind of any of this sort of obviously they should check out your website and go to tonelay.com but also like if you're just starting to get into this where would you start ah uh... This is um, – that's a big question. I mean, I think – Are there any books or, like, websites that you would recommend? There's so many great resources right now out there. One website that I use a lot is called Good On You. Yeah. That's basically an app that you can search a lot of brands, and they've done ratings of different brands. And so you can easily see, like, which one of the brands that you shop at is really trying harder than others. There's another website that's just started up in the Bay Area called Trestle. They're, they're trying to develop a, a button that you can put into Google, which will – basically pull up alternate if you're looking at certain products on a, on a well-known website it'll pull up more ethical alternatives for you and say oh, oh you're looking at this product like maybe you'd like this that's instead cool. mm -hmm. um so that's really cool i mean i think the true cost documentary is a really good um introduction um to the problems of fashion um and the fa and the fashion industry and i also really liked um the documentary river blue i thought that was river a very blue. good um kind of overview of what some of the problems are. And then I would also recommend checking out um, Fashion Revolution, which has a lot of resources for... So Fashion Revolution was an organization that started um, to commemorate the Rana Plaza collapse in which um, mm. over a thousand garment factory workers um, died in one day. In one day in Bangladesh, it was the largest uh, manufacturing disaster that's happened in, in our recent history. Um, and it kind of ignited a global movement to really talk about and focus on what's happening to the makers in the garment industry. Um, so Fashion Revolution has some great magazines. They've got some writing. They've got lots of resources and ways that you can participate. The Clean Clothes Campaign is another one that does a lot of great education 
Greenpeace has a ton of education around um, the garment industry, particularly on the pollution side. Um, so there's there's lots of great resources out there. Okay. And for anyone who is like listening in your car or on the treadmill, I will have links to all of these in the show notes. So don't worry about remembering them. You can always visit the site. Yeah. And the other thing I would just point out on this point is that there it's very easy to go get overwhelmed. Like I think the yeah. True Cost, for example, it's a great documentary, but they didn't provide a lot of solutions in the end of it. So it's a good starting point, but it can be very depressing when you get all this information and you start to think like, well, what can I possibly do? And I think the important thing is to just really try to process it into manageable parts mm -hmm. and just do what you can because every step, no step is too insignificant in my opinion. Every time that you buy something from a store that you know is doing something wrong, you're contributing to the problem. So every time that you try to avoid doing that is a good thing. I mean, no one's going to be perfect. We live in an unsustainable system. There's no such thing as true sustainability. So I think the important thing is to just try to make better choices as much as you can. There's no perfect choice. There's no good choice, but we can always make better choices, whether that be as something as simple as buying less clothing or washing your clothes, um, you know, in a more sustainable way or buying secondhand or just really, you know, one of the things that I like to do is just do research on a few brands and really know like, okay, I've done a deep research on this brand and I feel really good about buying from this brand. Okay. Um, so then when every time I go to buy clothes, I don't have to go and do it, go into this massive tailspin about depressing research. I can just be like, I already know this brand that I believe in. Let me buy from them. That's potentially a good way to not get too overwhelmed, right? It can be really hard because um, you you get all this information and then it can be a bit paralyzing. And then sometimes you just have like a wedding or a party that comes up and you're like, I need a dress. Oh my God. Like, And you're like scouring all these different websites. I mean, I think that's a perfect opportunity to borrow something from a friend, yeah, you know? Yeah, and honestly, just like we were talking about this with ho regarding Halloween costumes, like post something on Facebook and be like, who has a Halloween costume that they didn't, you know, that they still have yeah, from last year yeah. that I can wear? Um, you know, I think people are becoming more and more open to that. I, mm -hmm. I think one-time dresses for parties, like, it's not a very good idea to go out and just buy something for them. That's like when you get right. into the most problems, right? Right. Yeah, so exactly. So I think that – and there's like some great rental services now. So that's yeah. another thing to consider. Um, secondhand is always, I think – you know, we can be more creative. I think generally, I think people are becoming more open-minded about that. Hey, like let's have a clothing swap or, yeah. you know, so. Borrow a dress. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. I have just a couple more questions to wrap up, but you have obviously a lot to manage. You have people here, Cambodia, there's like a lot going on. Do you have any particularly like grounding practices or organizational tips for keeping everything together? Yeah. I mean, I think we talked about, touched on this a little bit. Um, in the beginning, but self-care is really important. And I feel for me, you know, I didn't do a very good job at this for a long time. And I've had to really force myself to have more balance because again, when you're being faced with these, like constantly with some really intense situations, I think, you know, it's easy to throw yourself completely into work. But the thing is, you, there's always more that you could be doing both. Like, I mean, for any entrepreneur, you know, there's always that guilt that's like, oh, I need to be doing this thing to like push my company that next step further. Mm -hmm. Or like right now for me, you know, we're coming up to the holidays and it's like, there's this pressure. Like if I don't get all these things done before the holidays, like the holidays is going to be a failure. And then like, you know, we'll be set back for like another whole year and all this stuff. And it's like, this is the capital of like capitalism, like rat race. Right. And yeah. it's not healthy. And as running a sustainable company, like part of it is like not buying into that. And the other thing with like the self-care, like there's a whole industry around self-care too, which 
makes me very cynical and upset because I think it can be very predatory. Yes. Like there's a, I agree. there's a lot of that. Yeah. Like if you're not doing this for yourself, then you're, you know, not doing enough and yeah. so forth. And yeah. And so that, and when, so when I say self-care, I don't mean like you have to go out and spend this much money on mm-hmm. a massage or like a yoga class or a consultation or anything like that. No. Like it can be very simple things for me. It's like literally just walking out in nature and like being outside without any phone or anything like that is probably like the most balancing thing I can do. Mm. And then also like my partner has helped me a lot with this and just like being able to have someone else who you can go to. And I think sometimes like focusing on someone else can also be a really good way to be like, yeah, get my mind off my own problems and stop thinking about like all my issues. And that actually gives you like the breathing space for mm-hmm. the things that you're dealing with. So making someone else feel happy or good, like that is like one of the best things I can do for my own mental health. And I mean, exercise, yeah, being outside, eating healthy getting a good sleep. I mean, it's honestly like super simple stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But so, so crucial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I have a couple of just kind of fun questions. If you could put a billboard anywhere in the world and it could say anything, what would you put on it and where would you put it? That's a really good question. I have to come back to that. Yeah, sure. For anyone who might be listening to this that has some sort of dream in their mind, they have they maybe they want to work more towards living kind of their values and it takes making some sort of jump and they need some inspiration. Maybe they're finishing up school or maybe they're at their nine to five at their desk listening to this right now. What sort of advice might you have for someone who's thinking about taking a leap like that? I think the big thing is that it's not about a leap. It's a bunch of lot of little steps. So, you know, even like to get to where I am today with Tonle, like it's been a 12 year journey, you know, and mm-hmm. all like, I honestly would not have envisioned, like I would have had no idea I was going to get to this point. I think we hear a lot of entrepreneurial stories that are like, one day I just had this light bulb moment and then I just went and did all this stuff. And like, now I have this like billion dollar company and that's so unrealistic. And I think the big thing is for me was like keeping my mind open to possibilities at the same time as like just every day taking a step and doing one thing. And a lot of those things like led to the next one. And that's maybe not the strategy for building like a billion dollar venture back company, but it is the strategy to build something that's long-term sustainable. And to me, And I mean, of course, everyone has their different tactics and strategy, but I think it's really important to focus on what you can do and not to get too tied up in the things that aren't happening or that you can't do. Yeah. And have you had any moments of doubt where you were doubting yourself or doubting that this was even possible? All the time. (laughs) (laughs) Every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even like enumerate them. How do you overcome when that happens and you start to feel that like tension? What do you what do you tell yourself or is there some, maybe you, maybe that's when you go on the walk to nature or like how do you get <laughs> yeah, over <yeah>. that? <laughs> <laughs> go for a walk. Um, I mean, yes, I think it's a constant process of self-evaluation and a big question for me is like always like, okay, if I wasn't doing this, could I be doing something that would make me happier and mm-hmm. create more impact in the world? And if the answer is no, then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, even though that's it's a kind good of one. crazy. Um, but so far, like, I've definitely gotten to points where I was almost like, should I shut this down and should I stop? And, you know, I asked those questions of myself and I'm like, I still haven't gotten to a point where I'm like, there's something that could be a better use of my time and that would make me feel more fulfilled. Happiness is not the right word. I, w- I would say fulfillment because, of course, there's like, you know, the concept of like type two fun, right? So there's type Type one. No. Type one fun is like when you're having fun in the moment and everybody is like, yay, we're having a good time. Right. And type two fun is when like 
in the moment is not fun at all, but afterwards you're like, oh yeah, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I think and there's I mean, a lot yeah. of type two fun in entrepreneurship. On a deeper level than that, it's like about, I would say, fulfillment and joy, which I would categorize as like a little bit less superficial than that momentary happiness where it's like, this is meaningful to me. I'm very lucky to be doing something where I feel like I can fully align my values every day I wake up and I know that what I'm doing is the best use of my time and my values and my energy. Mm-hmm. And that's an extremely luck- lucky position to be in. I feel like for me to be able to say that and for me to be able to wake up and be like, I might be having a super hard day and I might have been dealing with like a ton of really horrible things, but it's still worth it because I feel like I can feel like what I can feel 100% good about what I'm doing. Yeah. then it makes it worth it. And I don't know if there are other jobs or other opportunities that I could have that same level of like fulfillment in. And again, I realize that's like a very, very privileged, very, very privileged thing to be able to do. But I also think that there are lots of opportunities to align our actions with our values. It doesn't necessarily have to be through starting a business. But I think that it's good to evaluate. Like all of us participate in things that are not aligned with our values because we're in a system that's so... Yeah. disconnected from our own humanity. So of course you're going to be participating in things that are not great. Like there's no way around it. Like there, I pay taxes to a government that uses that money for things that I don't believe in. Both Cambodia and in the US. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And that's shitty. Mm-hmm. But I mean, unfortunately, this is the best I can do with the situation that I'm in. And I feel that I've made peace with that because I have looked at all my options and I've evaluated it and I'm like, yeah, this isn't perfect, but this is the best choice that I could be making. Yeah. I think there's like a deep sense of content contentment that you get when what you feel and what you do and everything starts to line up as far as living your values. Yeah. Yeah. One more pass on the billboard question. Do you have any other? I, I thought about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I would put, I would put, um, be kind on the billboard. Cause I think that like at the end of the day, we have to remember that we can be right, but if we're not treating people with kindness and I would say kindness is also relieving suffering. Okay. So it's not just about like being nice to people when you meet them, mm-hmm. but it's like, how am I, working to reduce like me living on this earth is creating suffering unfortunately because of the society that we live in how can I make an effort to reduce that suffering of other people and that could be in actions that I do that affect people across the world it could be in how I treat the people that I meet every day and I'm not I'm definitely not perfect at this it's something that I tell myself and that's why I would probably put it on Mm. a billboard because I think it's like we interact with people every day and if we're not you know, making sure that we're also living out that value in everyday actions. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Well, that's that's like the perfect wrap up. Um, so listeners can find you at Tonelay, T-O-N-L-E.com or at Tonelay Design on Instagram. Is there anything else that you would like to share with anyone listening? Anything that you have coming up that you want to promote or talk about before we wrap up? Yeah, just one more quick thing. So we just started a Tone Light Activist program, which is like our version of a brand ambassador program. Cool. Um, so basically people can get points for taking actions in their community, which could be anything from like picking up trash to eating a plant-based diet to, you know, washing your washing and hang drying all your laundry. Um, so we have a whole list of things that you can get points for. But the idea was basically that our brand is more than about just selling and promoting clothing. Uh-huh. 
It's also about living a life that's aligned with your values. And we want to basically say thank you to the people who are already, I mean, a lot of our supporters are already doing these things, right? So it's about like saying kind of thank you for that in a way. And, um, you know, we want to build our brand around something that's more than just like, oh, hey, buy this thing, you know, because a lot of our core supporters are buying less clothing, which yeah. is which is great. And we want to encourage that. So this is a way to kind of say, you know, you can align yourself with Tonle while at the same time we're not just going to pressure you to buy more clothes, right? So that is something we're really excited about. And you know, how do they find it? So if you go to our website and you go to the community tab, you can find all the details about that program. Okay, great. And I'll, I'll link to that as well. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much. This is great. And thanks for all of your efforts and continuous uh, doing what you do. Well, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, it was great to chat. out with me and listening to this episode of That's Different, head over to thatsdifferentpodcast.com to check out the resources mentioned, see the interview, or to join in the conversation about the episode. You can check out Tonle at tonle.com, that's T-O-N-L-E.com, or at Tonle Design on Instagram. If you aren't already subscribed, be sure to subscribe wherever you love to listen to podcasts so that you can catch future episodes. We have a lot of really, really great interviews coming out this season that I think you will love. And until next time, don't be afraid to be a little different.